Greetings, everyone, and welcome to our weekly podcast on legal issues in the post-COVID world. My name is Gil Porter, a partner at Haynes & Boone and chair of our COVID-19 task force, and today is Thursday, June 18th. We've all witnessed not only the health issues from this COVID pandemic, but also its effect on employment, the stock market, and the economy as a whole. Our topic today is how these challenges may also open opportunities for new ideas in estate planning. For this discussion, we're joined by two of my colleagues at Haynes & Boone. Mitch Miller has 35 years experience advising clients on estate planning, business planning, taxation, and retirement planning. And Jamie Carter, whose area of practice includes wealth preservation, estate and trust administration and taxation, and charitable organizations. Nathan Koppel, our head of media relations, will continue his role as moderator for this series. And I'll turn it over to Nathan in a moment, but before we begin, our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only, is not intended to be legal advice, does not establish an attorney-client relationship. By their very nature, the topics we discuss in these podcasts are fast-moving and subject to change. Legal advice of any nature should be sought from your legal counsel. That's it from me for now. Let me turn it over to Nathan. Thanks, Gil. And I just want to get started today by noting that um, Jamie, Mitch, and their colleague John Collins at Haynes & Boone put together an excellent article, which covers a lot of the topics that we're going to discuss today. And I would invite listeners to review that article, which is available at uh, the firm's COVID-19 resource page at HanesBoone.com. With that, Mitch, I'm going to direct the first question to you. Can you just explain why this is a particularly good time for people to consider techniques to, to reduce the cost of transferring wealth to younger generations? Well, Nathan, I think most estate planning practitioners and commentators would argue that there are a number of reasons, and at least three reasons in my opinion, why it's a a good time to consider wealth transfers or at least to reevaluate your current plan or tax planning plan. And those reasons would include low interest rates, depressed values, and the political uncertainty. And that first reason, the low interest rates, we're in an unprecedented time of extremely low interest rate environment. You know, what you're going to hear a number of times during this podcast is that, for example, in June, the applicable federal rate, or was also referred to as the AFR rate, which is set monthly by our U.S. Treasury, is the minimum interest rate that we typically use with respect to family wealth transfers. And for the month of June, for transactions that are contemplated and closed in this month, the AFR rate for loans less than nine years is 0.43%. And then even for loans that exceed nine years, the interest rate is only 1.01%. So transactions using these low interest rate notes are extremely attractive at this time. The second reason, you know, is that the pandemic and other economic factors has really resulted in depressed or decreases value in almost every industry we look at, you know, especially the oil and gas area, hospitality, leisure and travel. But more importantly, the trickle down effect to our closely held business owners or the mom and pop type businesses is quite obvious, especially when you compare their financial statements of today to previous years. 
So because of these depressed values, our sale prices or our gift values that we use in our wealth transfers are many times are at the lowest point ever in the history or the career of an organization or business. And the third reason that you know planning makes sense at this time is the political uncertainty at this time. As we all know, 2020 is an election year and nobody can predict the outcome of any election. But if the Democrat Party gets control of the White House and potentially the Senate, and you couple that with the concept that our government is going to be in need for sure to replenish its funds as a result of all the spending relating to the pandemic relief, there is a very significant chance that there was going to be an increase in both the income and the estate tax area. So those reasons alone make planning probably an extremely attractive time to consider things that might make sense that otherwise in the past have not been available. Mitch, can you remind me what the federal estate and gift tax tax exemption is in 2020 and what the state tax rate is right now? Well, we'll cover that in a minute, but currently per person, Nathan, it's $11,580,000 per person at a 40% a state tax rate. And do you think the threat posed by the pandemic has caused more families uh, to think about uh, revising their state plans? And and if so, any other legal developments or issues you think they need to think about um, when they do that? Well, Nathan, I think just the uncertainty caused by the pandemic um, and the idle time folks have had have given many people the opportunity to you know, revise and contemplate revisions to any estate plan or tax planning strategies. And in my opinion, one of the primary developments is what you just referred to or mentioned, and that is um, the the amount of our state and lifetime uh, gift tax exemption. As I just mentioned today, that exemption is $11,580,000 per person or a little over $12 million per couple. However, starting in 2026, this exemption is scheduled on the books to actually sunset and be reduced to revert back to $6 million per person with potential adjustments for inflation. And something else to be aware of, when Senator Bernie Sanders was running for the Democratic nomination, he had put together a platform for overhauling or substantially revising both the Internal Revenue Code, both on the income tax and the estate tax side. But what's happened since then is that his proposals have been put in writing even, and it's in a bill that's sitting on the shelf of the Senate. So it's available to be introduced really or added at any time to future legislation. And what's somewhat startling in the estate tax arena, besides increasing the estate tax rate at a minimum to 45%, Senator Sanders' bill would also reduce the exemption from its current level back to $3.5 million without inflationary adjustments. So really, in my opinion, the bad news is we're looking at a potential for many people to be impacted by this reduction in the estate tax exemption. The good news is, however, is that current commentators and indications are that there'll be no clawback, as we call it, with respect to the exemption if we use it today. That would be 
result if we use it today and there's an excess amount that basically is going to be reduced because of this reduction in exemption, if we use it now, we're not going to lose it. So it's a very incentive for many people who might be subject to this reduction or have be impacted by the reduction in the estate tax exemption to contemplate doing some planning. So one simple approach that was very popular back in 2012 when a similar decrease in the exemption was contemplated is for a husband and wife to contemplate implementing what we call spousal lifetime access trusts or SLATs as they're referred to. And what these are is that you're taking advantage of using this exemption amount before it's taken away and husband and wife are gifting this amount into separate trusts for each other. But the benefit of these trusts is that this amount that's gifted away can be used by the husband and wife for the rest of their lifetime. But whatever's left upon their passing will basically pass on to their heirs free of any estate tax. So the use of this kind of simple little approach just to gift an amount of your exemption into a trust for the benefit of your spouse is very attractive because of the potential loss of the exemption. And even another planning, even though that would impact much larger estates and people who have very large estates, you know, for other taxpayers, especially smaller estates, many of the clients we have seen have very old tax plans or old wills that haven't been updated in many years. And many of these older documents were put in place when the exemption was at a much lower amount. And these strategies in place, which probably haven't been modified, include very more sophisticated and complex tax planning and use of trust. And even with the cutback of the exemption amount, either to $6 million per person, even if it got down to $3.5 million per person, many people could simply simplify their documents and avoid all these complex strategies that were once you know, many years back were very commonplace. So there are plenty of opportunities, Nathan, for you know anybody with any size of an estate to either suggest some new planning or tweaking their old plan to consider the opportunities that in previous years were not available. Many thanks for that, Mitch. I really appreciate it. Jamie, I'm going to turn to you. In the article you wrote with Mitch and John Collins, you discuss grantor retained annuity trust as an effective device to, to transfer income and assets. Can you please explain how those work? Sure, Nathan. Uh, grantor retained annuity trust, which is also commonly known as a GRAT, is an irrevocable trust to which the grantor transfers assets such as a closely held business interest or other assets that generate income and have a substantial appreciation potential, with the grantor retaining the right to receive back the value of the property transferred plus interest over a specified number of years. Grats represent an opportunity for the grantor to transfer appreciating assets to the next generation with little to no gift or estate tax consequences. A grat is especially useful when the grantor owns a business interest or investment that is expected to grow or generate significant cash flow relative to the value of the asset. However, GRATs can also provide significant tax-free transfers of wealth using single large position one security, for example, Apple stock, or portfolio of securities. A GRAT is created when the grantor contributes assets with appreciation potential to a fixed-term irrevocable trust. The grantor retains the right to receive an annuity stream with a present value equal to the assets transferred over the trust term. Typically, GRATs have a term of two to five years. At the end of the GRATS term, the remaining assets are distributed without any gift tax to the beneficiaries, 
typically the grantor's children or trust for their benefit. When the interest rates are low, a grant is attractive because a successful grant requires that the assets outperform the IRS interest rate that you're required to use for valuing the gift to the grant. If the assets in the grant outperform the IRS interest rate, as Mitch mentioned, which is currently only six-tenths of a percent, the excess passes to the younger generation free of gift tax. If the grant fails to outperform the IRS interest rate, the only loss to the grantor is the current cost to establish and administer the grant. A grant is typically structured as a grantor trust for federal income tax purposes, which means that all of the income gains and losses are taxed to the grantor rather than the grant. As such, the assets in the grant are not reduced by income taxes, which results in larger distributions to the younger generation at the end of the grant's term. As an example, if the grantor transfers assets with, with a value equal to a million dollars to a two-year grant in June of this year, and the assets increase by 5% each year, the grantor would receive two annual annuity payments of approximately $500,000 each, and at the end of the two-year term, the younger generation would receive over $68,000 tax-free. Quite often, clients who establish a grant with marketable securities or portfolio of securities will use the annual distribution to create new grants, so the younger generation receives virtually 100% of the gains, but none of the losses. This series of grants is usually referred to as a rolling grant. Given the current economic climate, now is an ideal time to consider a grant. Do, do the terms of uh, grant, is it usually a, a typical term? Is it, do you, is it better to have a shorter or longer duration, or does it just depend on the circumstances? We like to use a shorter term. And it's less, you know, you have a more chance for a greater outcome. If you use a longer term, it's more likely that the value of the assets will go up and down, and so you might not get in the long term as much benefit as by using a short-term grant with great, you know, the larger potential for appreciation. Yeah, that makes sense. Let me ask you about intra-family loans. Are those like the spousal loans that, that Mitch described? Uh, some, somewhat, but you know, simply put, an intra-family loan is just a loan among family members. Um, however, it's a simple technique that can be extremely useful in estate planning. There are two basic types of intra-family loans. The first is when a family member simply loans money to another family member. The second, more common type, is where an asset is sold from one family member to another family member or to a trust for the benefit of the family member, and the seller loans the buyer the purchase money to pay the purchase price over a period of years. Given the historically low interest rates in June of this year, the senior generation could loan funds to the younger generation for a period of up to nine years and an interest rate of only 0.43%. From the lender's point of view, the loan freezes the value of the asset because all the lender can gain from the transaction is the return of the lender's principal plus a low fixed rate of interest. After the transaction is complete, all that is included in the lender's estate is the value of the note. Any appreciation in value of the asset that is sold or an investment that is made with proceeds from the loan is not included in the lender's estate for estate tax purposes. Thus, the lender's value is frozen to the value at the time of the transaction, and the appreciation is transferred to the buyer. The buyer is, however, liable for repayment in full, so there is some risk to the younger generation where there is no risk to the younger generation when using a grant. A sale is accomplished by making a gift of cash or other assets to a trust equal to 10% of the value of the asset being sold. As an alternative to a gift, the trust, if the trust doesn't have sufficient net worth to provide the 10% equity, 
a guarantee of at least 20% could be provided by an individual or an entity with sufficient net worth. The trust then purchases the assets from the seller for a cash down payment and a promissory note payable over a set number of years. The note must bear interest based on the IRS current interest rate. Again, as mentioned, the current rate for nine-year note is 0.43%, and the interest rate for a note over nine years is 1.01%. Using a sale like this will shift the appreciation in the assets sold to the trust, and the assets are out of the seller's estate. The only thing that remains in the seller's estate is the note payable to the seller. If the seller allocates generation skipping transfer tax exemption to the initial gift, the entire trust should be exempt from generation skipping transfer tax, and the trust can continue for multiple generations without any estate or generation skipping transfer tax. This is an advantage over the GRAD because with the GRAD, you cannot apply your generation skipping transfer tax at the start of the GRAD, but you can with the loan. Also, the interest rate hurdle for a loan is lower than that for a GRAD. As we mentioned, 0.43% for a midterm loan versus 0.6% for a graph. Interfamily loans can provide significant tax benefits. The difference between the current historically low interest rate on the loan and the rate of the return on the assets purchased with the loan passed to the younger generation with no transfer tax liability. In addition, an interfamily loan provides greater flexibility than a commercial loan because you can tailor the loan based on the individual needs of the younger generation. For example, the loan could be structured as an interest-only loan with a single balloon principal payment at the end of the term of the loan. An intrafamily loan can be especially effective when the loan is made to an intentionally defective grantor trust, which we will discuss in more detail next. Yeah, on that note, let me ask you about that. And I've always, I have to say that term confounds me, defective grantor trust. Why, why would I want to use anything that's defective? <laughs> well, an intentionally defective grantor trust is an irrevocable trust that's established by the grantor for the benefit of typically his or her descendants. The assets are transferred. The assets that are transferred to the trust will not be included in the grantor's estate for estate tax purposes. However, the income generated inside the trust will be taxed to the grantor. Gifts and/or sales to an intentionally defective grantor trust are used to freeze the asset the value of the assets transferred to the trust and transfer any future appreciation out of the grantor's estate tax-free to the beneficiaries. Because the grantor is treated as the owner of an intentionally defective grantor trust for federal income tax purposes, the grantor can sell assets to the trust without incurring a taxable gain. Interest payments from an installment sale to a grantor trust will not be treated as taxable income to the grantor. The income earned by the trust will be taxed by the grantor, taxed to the grantor directly so that the grantor pays the income tax out of his or her estate while the younger generation receives the gross income. So in effect, the younger generation receives a tax-free gift of the amount of income taxes that would otherwise be payable by the trust. The assets inside the trust will grow tax-free and the grantor is reducing his or her estate tax by making, or his or her estate, excuse me, by making a tax-free gift of the income tax paid to the beneficiaries of the trust. So in considering the transaction I previously discussed, the advantages to such a transaction are increased when the trust is an intentionally defective grantor trust. Again, a seller would make a, a gift of cash equal to 10% of the value of the assets that are to be sold to the trust. The seller would then sell the assets to the trust in exchange for a cash down payment and a promissory note. 
because the trust he, we're using here is a grantor trust, the seller will continue to pay the income tax on the income generated from the assets sold to the trust. This results in a larger amount passing to the younger generation than if the trust was not a grantor trust because the grantor rather than the trust is paying the income taxes. No gain will be recognized by the grantor because this sale is treated as a sale from the seller to the seller. Other than the small initial gift to the trust, the sale is generally treated is generally not treated as a gift for gift tax consequences. And again, if the seller allocates generation skip and transfer tax to the initial gift to the trust, the entire trust should be exempt from generation skip and transfer tax, which will allow the trust to continue for multiple generations without any estate or generation skip and transfer tax. If the growth and appreciation of the assets sold to the grantor trust exceed the IRS interest rate, the excess is transferred to the younger generation free of gift and estate tax, and the assets are not included in the grantor's estate. Like the graph, the lower the IRS interest rate, the more likely the growth and appreciation of the assets held in an intentionally defective grantor trust will exceed the interest rate. Given the present economic environment, it is we believe it is an excellent time to consider a sale of assets to an intentionally defective grantor trust. Thanks, Jamie. Uh, Mitch, I'm going to turn to you. I understand that wealth management trusts might be an alternative for some clients to defective grantor trusts. Can you tell me about wealth management trusts? Sure, Nathan. Well, Nathan, the problem, the issue with a potentially defective grantor trust, the downside, as I like to say, is that the trust there, the parents or the grantors, as we're kind of referring to here, generally do not have any use of the assets during their lifetime. So even though mom and dads are really trying many times trying to pass wealth down to their children, there are also circumstances where there are, are situations where mom and dad, hey, want to make sure they're provided for, have their assets available to themselves during their lifetime. So the typical intentional defective grantor trust, as Jamie mentioned, only benefit your children or your grandchildren. So as an alternative to that structure or a similar side-by-side trust that's commonly used, meaning you might create an intentional defective grantor trust for your children, but you also might have parents having a what's called a wealth management trust or what's commonly referred to as a 678 trust established for themselves. A lot of people realize that, you know, wealthy people that say, well, hey, I can have a trust created for anybody, meaning just because you're wealthy doesn't mean someone cannot create a trust for for them. So what happens with a 678 or wealth management trust is that the the parents or the beneficiaries, parents or siblings or a close friend will create a trust for the parents or the beneficiary. And the beneficiary or the which is the parents is deemed to own that trust under the grantor trust rules. So as a result, the income earned by a wealth management trust or a 678 trust is still taxable to the beneficiary parents. In addition to that, since the parents are the beneficiary, the main advantage is they retain the use of those assets during their lifetime. So if the parents need the assets or need it to live off of or whatever the trust has, or whatever it's getting in regard to assets that are coming into that trust or whatever they're earning in the market or rents coming in or whatever the assets are in the trust, the income stream and principal for that matter is available to the parents during the rest of their lifetime. The other thing that's really attractive about all these trusts 
both the intentionally defective and the 678 of Wealth Management Trust, is that the assets in these trusts are creditor protected. So it's a nice vehicle also to contemplate, hey, if mom and dad have created some wealth, this is also a way to achieve a little bit of creditor protection in the unlikely event some creditors come a calling with respect to trying to get to the assets owned by the beneficiary. And of course, the assets in a, either of these trusts, especially the 678 trust or wealth management trust, will pass on upon the passing of the parents estate tax-free. And it's, not, and it's quite common to put in these trusts that the beneficiary parents of the 678 or wealth management trust have what's called a power of appointment over the assets, which allows them to redirect the assets to other people, to their family, to their descendants, or to charities, similar to what a will does with respect to assets in their own name. So it almost becomes like a second will or second plan of disposition that might be very consistent with their will or the other documents, but it can be different if they want, want to. And just like a will, they have the right to modify that power of appointment during their lifetime. So all the planning opportunities and benefits of an intentionally defective grantor trust can also be can be replicated by using a similar trust created for mom and dad through a 678 or wealth management trust. Well, it sounds like a very useful and flexible instrument. Mitch, Jamie, thank you so much for your for your time today. And with that, Gil, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you, Nathan. And thank you, Mitch and Jamie. This discussion's a reminder to me of how unprepared I am personally. But it's also a reminder that every challenge we face brings with it some valuable strategies if we seek out the right advice on how to optimize. And thank you to our listeners for joining our COVID-19 podcast series. Next week's webinar and podcast will move into the world of geopolitics as we take a look at the state of China-U.S. relations and how that impacts cross-border investment and trade between the two countries. As a reminder, you can find our podcasts, webinars, and other content at hainesboon.com. That's H-A-Y-N-E-S-B-O-O-N-E.com. Please also feel free to reach out to me or to Nathan Koppel if you have any suggestions for further podcast topics. Take care all and good night. Good night.